0: This morning, open your Bibles to Matthew 6. As I said before, John 17 is, is that part in the in the high priestly prayer where we get to enter into the, the inner sanctum of Christ's heart as he bears his soul and prays to his father, John 17. We went through that gospel account verse by verse years back. It's online. You can look at it. And, and, he, and he prays. And we get to hear the Son of God, the King of Kings, pray. A beautiful portion of Scripture. Here we get to hear... What Jesus teaches us about prayer, the very intimate undertaking of praying to God. And if anybody's going to teach us about prayer, it would be God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, let's listen to what Jesus has to say about prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Hear the word, the infallible, authoritative, inspired word of God. Jesus says, chapter 6, verse 9, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, verse 15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So, I want to do quickly is. Say a little bit about Matthew. Uh, Ricky covered it much deeper than I will. You could, Pastor Ricky, you could look at it from last week. Remember the larger culture, a larger context. Matthew is a Jewish tax collector. He's writing from a Jewish background and understanding. He's demonstrating that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and King. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David. Both promises given in the Old Testament, Matthew one one. He has a lot of Jewish references in there. Each gospel account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have been written to a certain audience. Mark was written to the Romans. The word immediately is in that gospel over and over again because the Romans did things quickly. Luke was written to the Gentiles. So therefore, there's a lot of Old Testament explanation because the Gentiles didn't understand the Old Testament. John is writing to the Greeks. That's why he opens up with the Logos. The Greeks had a, a, an understanding of what the Logos is. And John says, nope, the Logos is Christ. That's the wider context the closer context as pastor ricky said is the sermon on the mount and i quote him i thought this was great he said this the sermon on the mount is not a combination of rules to be obeyed so that christ will allow us into the kingdom it is how we should live because christ has brought us to be part of his kingdom not to be lived out in our own strength but through leaning on the ruler of the kingdom end quote Jesus is coming in his his first coming and inaugurated the kingdom. And and it guarantees that there will be a final, unshakable kingdom to come. But until then, we are to live as kingdom citizens under the reign of Christ, empowered by the gospel. And little by little, we'll see the reign of Christ among us. That's the the context. The immediate context, we know, is the Lord's Prayer. Ricky pointed out in chapter 6 and verse 6. Jesus says, pray not like the hypocrites. They are a bunch of people, are self-righteous, and their prayer is just so they can get greater attention. Don't pray like that. Chapters uh, 6, verse 7 and 8, don't pray like the pagans and the Gentiles pray. Why? They think about their fancy words, their repetition, that somehow it's going to wake God up, who's not really paying attention, and then God will do something. Why shouldn't we pray like the Gentiles do? Verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's still to pray. Then Jesus goes on to say, pray this way, verse 9, in this manner, with this framework. And the first three petitions, as mentioned last week, has to do with looking up for God's glory. Pastor Ricky said, number one, God's name, our Father in heaven. He's not a distant, impersonal being, but a Father. Uh, Gospel people are brought into this relationship with our Creator. We can call Him Father through the blood-bought purchase of christ he brings us into intimacy father hallowed be your name your name is is the person uh, of who we're talking to his holiness his otherness his beauty his infinite worth his immeasurable value we are to we have this posture of reverence and awe and respect should permeate our lives our father who art in heaven your kingdom come Ricky said we got to look back and see God's sovereignty. We've got to look forward to the coming kingdom. But but the kingdom has to do with right now is the people of God submit to the king of Christ. And we pray that God's kingdom comes so that, as we did for Japan, we're doing for Glenmont and around the world, that people will come to know they're a sinner, they need Christ, they repent, repent and believe, and then Christ becomes their Lord and Savior, and they submit to his kingly reign. Remember, when you think of kingdom, first thing, king. It has to do more with the reign than the people. They submit to King Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's the sovereignty aspect. Ricky mentioned last week. It's true. God is sovereign. He has the right and the power to rule and to reign and to bring everything under subjection to him. He has the right and authority and he will govern all things according to his wise and holy Purposes, It will not be thwarted no matter how much of a knucklehead I am. I am not going to step outside of God's sovereignty. But Ricky talked about praying thy will be done. And he mentioned the word preceptive will. In other words, his desires, his directives, his commands found in Scripture. That we are to pray, your will be done. We know what you want from us. And we need to do it. And our desire, this prayer, is that the whole world will come underneath the authority of Christ. Bow their knee to King Jesus. Their hearts treasuring him, honoring him, hoping to see the manifestation of his kingdom as he reigns supremely. His will will be done on earth as it is already in heaven. That's the Greek text. It says already it's already being done perfectly in heaven. There's no sin before the throne of God. Your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We want to follow your authority, your lead. And we get into that, we see this glory, we see this name, we see the, the beauty of Christ, we see the will of Christ, we see the kingdom of Christ. Then we get into the next request, and there's three of them, the personal request. Verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13. And like Ricky, I think we could just look at it from, right from the, from the context. One, our daily bread, personal needs now. Daily bread, debts forgiven, and deliverance from temptation. Or evil. Okay, so that's where we're going. Number one, look what, look what Jesus said. I, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, will be done. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I want you to notice something. We, uh, Ricky mentioned again last week, we, we've said this prayer a million times. And this may go right over your head, you may not even see it. I'm going to point it out to you this morning. If you ever come to my house... I live out in Voorheesville, and we're in the backyard, or we're at the, we're having dinner or something, and and all of a sudden there's a rumbling going on in my home, and all of a sudden things are starting to move, and it's getting louder, and we're talking, and then you stop and look at me and go, "What is that?" I'm going to say, "What is what?" <laughs> oh, the train! Yeah, I've been here so long, I, I I don't even I don't even hear it anymore. Right? It's the train. It's coming by. I feel like it's coming through the house. It won't. I promise. But look at this prayer It began in verse nine with the word our and then it's picked up in verse 11, 12 and 13. It's the little word us. Us. I always thought of this prayer primarily for me, not for us. But he says it three times. Give us forgive us lead us. It's not just personal. It's communal. We are to pray these things not only for ourselves. I believe that we are to actually act and serve one another through these petitions. We come from such an individualistic culture. We miss that so many times. Yes, we belong to Christ. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. But we belong to each other. Us. We're his body, his people, brothers and sisters. This is familial language. Not familiar, although it is that too, but familial, family language. So keep that in mind as we go through these petitions. It's us, not me. Father, give us this day our daily bread. And where does it begin? It begins with a a clear dependency upon our Father. There's a dependency upon our Creator God for the things that we need day by day. This is not a license for laziness. I'm just going to sit here and pray, and God's going to meet my daily needs and drop it out of the sky, right? Scripture has a lot to say about that. Read Proverbs about the sloth, about the lazy person. Proverbs chapter 30 has an interesting passage. Listen to this. Talk about daily needs. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Deny me, deny them not to me before I die. One, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That's the prayer of the psalmist. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, it's not a license to be lazy, nor is it saying you shouldn't put money away for a rainy day. It's not saying that. The Bible is, is, is really the prayer is, meet my needs, not my greeds. The prosperity gospel, people haven't picked that up yet, but that's what Jesus is praying. It's not carte blanche to get whatever I want. I command that Cadillac to me. Bring my money to me. You saw that video we showed, American gospel. It's a great video, a great movie, right? Bring that to me. That's not what he's saying. The Bible is not against riches, but it speaks loudly against the temptation of riches, That will lure us away from the dependency that God wants us to have on him. For our daily needs. Recognizing his glory. Like Nebuchadnezzar, You know the story. Daniel 4. He looks out over his kingdom. What does he say? Oh, this is a great city. Look at all that I have done. I built it by my power. my My royal residence. For my glory. And we know what happened to him. Out on the grass he ate for a while. This prayer... Give us this day our daily bread it is an acknowledgement of our deep dependency on God for the daily things that sustain our life. Here's something else interesting, which I didn't know. The word daily, no one understood what the word daily meant till not that long ago. It's only one other time in scriptures, Luke, in the same prayer, and it really isn't found in antiquity in the Greek. So they really were unsure what daily meant. I mean, you and I read and think, well, it's daily. Well, a piperous piece of paper that they used to write on this type of reed, uh, leaf, a uh, plant, uh, appeared. And it was back from in those days. And it was a grocery list, a woman's shopping list, uh, reminding her what to buy, the need that she had for the next day when she went shopping. So I guess it's been all, around, all along right. Daily means to give us what's necessary, our provisions for this day, or, some of your translations might even have this, for the next day. I mean, if you're praying at night, you're praying the next day, my my daily needs for tomorrow. Now, you may think, all right, so I'm praying, Lord, give me a loaf of bread, two slices of wonder bread for tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. Remember the culture. If you ask a five-year-old, where does food come from? They're going to say, Hannaford. At least mine will, then Borisville. It comes from Hannaford, it comes from Price Chopper. We go in, we buy stuff that is, you know, wrapped in bags. Not in that day. The other thing is that you gotta understand the culture is people work, many people worked in that day for their daily wage. They got paid at the end of the day for the next day. We don't, you know, they, you live paycheck to paycheck. Many of us do. They live day to day. Day to day. That's how they work. They work at the end of the day. You missed work, you had a problem. If you missed a couple of days, you really got a problem. Because that daily wage was sustenance for their family. You may ask, if you ask me, you know, why do you work? I might say to eat, but that's not really the right answer. To get stuff. Put money away, go on vacation. When you ask the first century Palestine person, why do you work? 80% of their money went towards food. And guess what? Bread was a staple in their culture. And without bread, they would die. It's that important. So there's a lot of cultural barriers. We don't really think of bread like that. But if you put the passage in its proper historical context, that you earned one day for the next day, that you had bread which helped you to live, and without it, you would die... You needed it. Then you can see there's a whole new meaning. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the very thing we need to, to survive. And we have a tendency in this modern day, really, not to live day by day. Right? We stock up food. I got, I got a pantry. I could probably live in my house for, I don't know, two months. Maybe longer without going to the store. Right? It, it's not our regular practice. But in that day, it was sustenance. And yet many times when we pray, I don't know about you, but when we eat, we, we take a moment out, don't we? Uh, many of you say grace and, and, and before you eat. And, and it's that moment in time, I think, that we is applicable here. That we can, at least every day, take a moment and remember that all that we have comes from God. Many times when I used to pray to my kids when they were younger and now with my grandson at mealtimes, I'm mindful of it. And I will pray, like, not just for the food, but I will try to try to remember daily things. Like, Lord, thank you for this home. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the clothing. Thank you for the shelter. Thank you for the energy you gave me today. You know, try to keep it in the day and recognizing that we are dependent upon him for everything we have. I mean, God is the one who brings the rain, causes seasons to change, produces minerals that... uh, Make the soil fertile, provides animals and plants. We are dependent upon him. And we should be aware of that as we pray. Sustenance, life, everything that we need to sustain us is from you. That's what he's saying. What about this little word, us? Give us. Well, love requires that I pray this way because this prayer, this petition, reaches far more than just my personal needs. By praying us to to give us this day our daily bread, the Lord is instructing us to love others, to have compassion on others, especially the poor and the needy among us. God requires us to love our neighbors as ourselves and, and to be attentive, to be attentive to our brothers and sisters as we are of our own needs. We just learned in Galatians 6, have an opportunity to do good to what? Everyone, especially those of the household of faith. There is solidarity in this prayer. When you pray this prayer, think it's not just me. It's my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a a prayer of solidarity. And even Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says this. Let him labor. Let us work, right? We're not going to be lazy. We're going to pray to God, but we're going to work. Let us work. Doing honest work, Ephesians 4.28, doing honest work with our hands so that we may have an abundance of stuff and go on vacation every month. Nope. Doing honest work with our own hands so we could say, look how great we are. It says, do honest work with his own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. You ever think about working to share with those in need? May God grant us, listen, the physical things of this life that we can have physical nourishment, strength and and the essentials so that we can be strong to do the will of God. We just prayed for that. Thy will be done. Give us the, the daily necessities, the food and the strength we need so that we can do your will. God is glorified, back to chapter nine, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. God is hallowed, glorified, when he supplies and we are dependent upon him. God is glorified when he forgives us of our debts, verse 12. God is glorified when he steps in and he delivers us from temptation. This is still about the Lord. It is still about his glory. So let me ask this question to you. Does your heart rejoice... Knowing that this holy, sovereign God cares. The one who created the entire universe, who is self-sufficient, cares about supplying your daily needs. Does your heart rejoice? Are we thankful to God for our food and all that he provides to sustain our lives when we pray? Or is it just a formula? We've got to pray before we eat. I don't want the food to get me sick. Somehow, if I pray, I'll never get sick when I eat, Right? Let's not say grace out of duty, but a truly dependent and grateful heart. And do we pray, last question, you don't have to answer this, but write it down and think about it. Do we pray this prayer? Do we do our grace time around meals with eyes and hearts, open, thinking about the daily needs of others that are among us that we can help? Let it, Give us this day our daily bread. Number two, our debts forgiven. Verse 12. And forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This part of the prayer is troubling to some. Remember the context? The context is Jesus is, is teaching his followers how to pray while on earth, while in circumstances in their life. It's not for later. It's not for when they enter into the kingdom. Jesus will be there. We won't be praying. It's just like daily bread, just like deliverance from evil. He says, forgive us of our debts. This is a family prayer. It does not mean that our debts are forgiven only if we forgive others. We'll talk about that. So in other words, some of this works-based salvation, God will only forgive me if I forgive others. If somehow you can earn your forgiveness, we just did, I don't know how many weeks in Galatians. We are saved, we are justified, we are forgiven. We receive the free gift of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? So I want to give you three things to think about. We'll think about together about what this prayer means. The first thing is justification. Jesus' instruction here does not change the gift of our justification, and it is just that, a gift. Justification means, remember, one coin, two sides. We've been forgiven because of the atonement of Christ, dies in our place, and his righteousness is imputed to us. We're not righteous. He's righteous. That free gift doesn't change by this prayer. Notice he does not say, forgive us of our debts because we forgive our debtors. Notice he doesn't say forgive us of our debts on the basis that we forgive others. It says forgive our debts as we, even as I forgive those who are indebted to me. Okay? Forgiveness. Let me think about that. Lord, forgive me of my debts as in the same way I've forgiven that person. That's a scary thought. No more, no less. In the same way. Now the word debt is intentional. Matthew uses it, Luke doesn't. Jesus used the imagery of debts to describe the nature of sin. This moral and spiritual debt that we owe to God that must be paid. When we think of debts, D-E-B-T-S, debts. My accent, I know you all following What was he saying? Debts. You can see it in the scripture. When we think of monetary debts, when we think of debts, we think of monetary debts. Not necessarily moral and spiritual, right? So let's say you stop at Stewart's. We love to stop at Stewart's, get some ice cream. My daughters love milkshakes there. And you're in line, you're getting a milkshake. And the guy, little kid in front of you, he's about eight years old. And he gets a three scoop cup, stacked right up. Four scoop cup. Comes to $3. And a little kid takes out his money, he's been saving up his allowance, and it comes to $2.30. He's 70 cents short. I know I went to public school. I can figure that out. 70 cents, right? A few things could happen. He can go, look, I don't have the money. I'm in debt. I don't have the money. Here's the cone back. You could, out of an act of grace, pull out 70 cents and and pay the other 70 cents. And he is now debt free. Or he could look at his ice cream cone, his ice cream cup, look at his money, give the lady $2.30 and run out of the store. Just run out of store. Now, what just became what was a monetary debt has become now a moral debt. He's a thief. He's on the run. Get that kid. (laughs) When someone owes you money, they're indebted to you. But when someone seriously wrongs you, sins against you, there's this unquestionable and unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you. It's a it's this wrong has incurred a an obligation, a liability, a debt. What the Bible teaches us is that the nature of our debt to God is huge. God has commanded us to be holy as he is, holy perfect as he is perfect. And yet one sin, one transgression falls... We fall helplessly short of his glory, his standard, and we are now in the position of indebtedness to God, something we can't escape and something we cannot pay. And here's the thing. Every debt will be paid. God is holy and God is just, and sins will be paid. You and I owe to God genuine and flawless worship with solemn and unending obedience to do as God commands us to do. And when we rebel against God, there's a debt that's owed. It's in our own culture, we know it ourselves, but it was on the cross. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered and took our deserved wrath upon his body, he was crushed for our sins, he shed his blood, he paid the debt we owed that we could never pay, and Paul says, now, therefore, in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Why? Something you did? No. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, the eternal judge has declared us pardoned, justified, righteous by faith in Christ. God can't simply pass by our sins. He is holy and is just. And sin, unless there's punishment being paid, He, somebody will have to do it. That's why Christ died. God has given us, based on the one-time sacrifice of Christ on the cross justification and at the moment you place your faith in christ you repent and believe on christ your sin was put on him in calvary's hill and his righteousness been put on us that's justification judicially declared just we looked at that galatians 2 6 okay so our past present and future sins are on him so what is jesus saying we know that to be true from a lot of scripture Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, the answer lies in differentiating between God as judge and God as father. Again, Matthew 6, 9. God as judge and God as father. As a guilty sinner before God or a justified sinner, adopted child of God. Luther used to call it the simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously justified and Sinner. There's a difference. There's a difference between my progress, growing in holiness, growing in sanctification, and my position before Christ being justified by a gift eternally secure in him. And unless you don't, 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 if you don't understand that, you'll never understand this passage. Judicially, we're secure. But this prayer is meant to teach us that we are joyfully, I use that word purposely, we are secure judicially, Justified, but this prayer is meant to teach us that we are joyfully obligated to forgive others. Joyfully obligated to forgive others. If we have had this profound change of heart by the gospel, by this free gift of God's grace called justification, it will express itself in a willingness to forgive others. Forgiveness will be present in a believer if there has been truly. If they have truly received forgiveness. One commentator writes this very simply. By forgiving our debtors. The believer shows himself to be a child of God. In other words. How can we refuse someone forgiveness. When the whole reason. How we came into the kingdom of God. A child of God is through forgiveness. That we have received. Since God is willing to forgive us. We ought to forgive others. Now let me be really pastorally careful here. Okay? We're not talking about if you're here this morning, you're going through the process of forgiveness. Dealing with the pain and the anguish and the hurt of forgiveness. We're not talking about the process. We're talking about refusal. Okay? I don't think Jesus is talking about the struggle either. If you've been hurt deeply, you know That it reappears its ugly heads at certain times in your life and you got to go back to the cross. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about, I will never forgive. That's a problem. And the bottom line is, if you received in your heart the grace of God and you've been forgiven of your sins, you've been justified by grace, it cannot help but transform your heart to be merciful to others. The evidence of a, uh, listen, the evidence of a forgiven heart is a forgiven, forgiving heart. J.I. Packer writes this, Those who live by God's forgiveness must imitate it. One whose only hope is that God will not hold his faults against him forfeits his right to hold other faults against them, end quote. Justification is Secure. Our joyful obligation is expected. And third, our joyful experience will be the result. This prayer is meant to teach us how we can regularly experience the joy of God's forgiveness. Not eternally, positionally, but experientially. This prayer is for our daily existence as we live day by day. Again, we're not talking about the the justification by faith alone, the right standing. We're talking about the day-to-day fellowship with God. This this whole idea of communion with God and confessing our sins is all over Scripture. Jesus told, I think, s- six or five of the churches in Revelation to repent of their sins. Okay? Jesus, asked, You know, John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 13, Jesus comes to Peter and says, you are clean, but you need your feet washed. It's that regular... If you have been a Christian longer than five minutes. You know when you sin. You know when you yelled at that person. That's just the other day. My wife's not here. She's teaching. I was such an idiot. She called me out on it. And I had every ounce of my being wanted to make up an excuse. And not. Just, just get a shot right in the head that I deserve. And I, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to eat this one. I'm, I've got five excuses. I, I'm a preacher. I can outline it for you if you want. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. She was right. I was wrong. I got in my car. What did I do? I bowed my head. She's his daughter. And I prayed I know God hears me. I know God has forgiven me eternally. But I know I'm an idiot. I need to pray. And God, and I receive and joyfully receive the forgiveness that he offers at Calvary. That's what he's saying. If you hold on to your grudges, you will not enjoy the intimacy and joy of fellowship with God if you hold on to your sin, if you hold on to your stupidness and and brokenness. You you need a fresh understanding, a fresh measure of grace, forgiveness. It's, It's healing to the soul. An unforgiven heart continues in pain and isolation and bitterness and resentment and lack of joy. (laughs) The Lord's Prayer is is, is the children of God coming to Dad. You have kids. They do stupid things. I'm sorry, Dad. I forgive you. I love you. But really, it was cold for a little while there because you hurt me. There's nothing more, nothing less. We need to confess. But look what it says again. Us. Us. Do we live together, here's my question, do we live together encouraging each other to forgive? Do we live together holding each other accountable? If you have a brother or sister and they have unforgiveness and they're talking about their unforgiveness and their bitterness, are you man enough, woman enough, and relationship enough and say, that's wrong, man. Listen, that's going to kill you. That's going to eat you. Let's talk about this. Let's live life together, hold each other accountable, live in community, forgiving one another. Finally, deliverance from evil. Look at verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? Another one that's like, really? It sounds like Jesus saying, God, don't lead me to do evil. Don't, don't walk me down this road that's, that you're, you're showing me it's evil. James says, let no one say he's tempted by God. One cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil, excuse me. He himself tempts no one. So it's not saying, Lord, don't lead me, don't lead me into evil. The problem with understanding that verse is the word temptation. The word temptation could be translated trials, like James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. polka polka dot, different strengths. Knowing that it's the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness. Same word, trials, temptation, 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Temptation, same Greek word. So that the testing genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold that perishes. Though it's tested by fire. There's a testing of our faith. The word translated temptation can denote something that is enticing you to sin. But also can be a way of testing to see what you're made of. To show forth your faith, to to showcase your faith, to strengthen your faith. A better wording might be, do not lead us into the place of testing. Jesus is saying that we should pray that the Father will never cause us to undergo a severe test of our faith and therefore destroy our faith and destroy and hurt our obedience. However, doesn't God sometimes test his people? Did he not test Abraham? Was not Jesus tested, tempted in the wilderness? Think of driving tests, right? Think of, think of tests maybe you have on the job, educational or training. It is to show how much you know, to show how much you uh, are doing things right. God sometimes tests us, sometimes a lot. He does it to show us our dependency upon him his purposes, god's purpose is always wonderful it's constructive it strengthens us satan's always to destroy us to 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 walk away when trials and circumstances come your way and they're joyful we are we are tested to say god praise you give you the glory thank you for all your blessings or we're tempted to say look what i've done I can enjoy all the power and authority and glory I have. When trials come and difficulties come in your life, we could either be in a trial with God and say, Oh, Lord, I need you. We're just saying it. I need you every hour, every day. Get me through this trial and show our faith in God. Or we could shake our fist at God. How dare you do this and walk away? Anger and bitter. It depends. The Lord is playing. listen. If it's possible, no temptation, no nothing that will damage me and my honoring of you. J.I. Packer wrote this. I love this. It says this. Temptation, testing, that Greek word, may be our lot, but only a fool will make it his preference. Preference. Who wakes up and says, Lord, I can really go for a strong, strong test today. Put me in that pressure cooker and really work my life so I am just flat out on my back in prayer to you. I'm looking forward to it. But yet God does do that, doesn't he? He says, don't leave me in that place where I I, I, I fall in, in the circumstance of my life. And what? Deliver me from the evil one. From the devil himself. If you don't believe in the devil, you don't believe what Jesus taught. There's an evil one out there. He's not some impersonal cosmic force, but a person who wants to take you out. We don't fear him because he's not omnipotent. God is omnipotent. This prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is saying he's powerful, but you're greater. Because you're the deliverer. You are the one that will see me through and get me through this. That's the prayer. We're going to close the end of the service in a little bit here. We're going to sing a song of Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. This petition is a plea again. What I can't do for myself, my daily bread, forgiveness of my sins. Lord, please watch over me. Keep my eyes, my ears, my heart, my feet, my mouth, anywhere I go. Keep, Keep me and protect me from sin. Tim Keller writes this, make me the kind of person who when I go into temptation, when I go into difficulty, when I go into test, instead of being overcome by the devil, I'm leaning on you. End quote. Do you know what's missing in this prayer? Look at look with me in Matthew six. We're almost done. What's missing in this prayer that Jesus taught us later on in John? How are we to end prayer? What did Jesus say that we should do? Pray in what? In his name. Ask in my name. We don't see that here. Jesus taught us in John 14. When you pray, ask in my name. This whole prayer is in Jesus' name. It is Jesus who tore the veil that was between us and God because of our sin. Who sacrificed his very life. So that we become can become the family of God. And call out father. It is Jesus who is the word who became flesh. And we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. His face shines the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4. It is Jesus who is the king of kings. Who will reign He reigns now and reign in his kingdom. When it comes, it will be unshakable. It is Jesus alone who could say to the Father, I have glorified you. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I fulfilled your will completely. It is Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. That has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of my bread, he will live forever. It is Jesus alone who's the debt bearer, who paid our debt, took our punishment, bore our sins on the cross. ...when he gave up his life. Every priest stands daily, Hebrews tells us. But Jesus gave his life once for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He gives us the right to call him Father. His name is hallowed. His kingdom will come because he's the king who will come. He gave his life and he is the bread of life that gives us eternal life. He forgives us of our debts, and finally Jesus leads us... ...not into temptation, but deliver us from evil... ...because he went through that test in the wilderness... And not like Adam who failed, he had victory. In fact, the Bible tells us in Colossians that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that we have failed God. He did it how? By setting it aside, nailing it to the cross, and by doing so, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This whole prayer is in Jesus' name. As we go to communion, look, at, look with me at verse 14. There's one thing that Jesus reiterates in his prayer, and that's in verse 14 and 15. Listen to what it says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a tough verse. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches on prayer, excuse me, on forgiveness. Remember the debtor, uh, the servant owed the king millions of dollars. The king forgave him. He took a fellow slave and owed him a little bit and wouldn't forgive him. And then Jesus says, the king came back to him and said, listen, I have given you mercy. I have shown you mercy. I have forgiven your debts. How can you not then forgive someone else's debt after I've forgiven you? Now, go to the jailers. Chapter 18, verse 33. And in anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's what Jesus is saying: If there's unforgiveness and you're a refusal to forgive sins in your life, for those who have harmed you, if you just refuse to do it, it may be. it may be a sign that your heart has never been truly open to the grace of Christ. God is not the one torturing. He says he turns you over to the jailers. Family, listen to me. God is not actively involved in your torture. He simply removes his hand and says, "You want to go to prison? You want to not forgive? You want to remain bitter and angry? Hold on to your judge to your grudges." When you refuse to forgive, it gnaws at you and hurts you, hurts your heart and it puts you in prison. By not forgiving, at the very least, it shows that you are, you are obstructing the work of the gospel, the effect of the gospel in your life, when anger, resentments, and bitterness controls you. You want to go to jail? Go to jail. If you want to, be a, you want to have an unforgiven heart, then have an unforgiven heart. You want to be free? You want to have joy of the freedom of the gospel? Here and now, forgive. Why would God say such hard things? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. And he knows. In order to receive. In order to have a heart open. To the majesty and beauty. And the work of Christ. We've got to let go. Of those who have harmed you. Now if you're here this morning. And there's someone who's deeply hurt you. And you're willing to go through the process. But you don't know how. Or you don't have anyone to help you. Contact the pastors. Contact the church. We have people here that will help you. If it's destroying your heart, destroying your soul, robbing you of your joy, robbing you of your intimacy and communion with God. We want to help you to work through that process and get to the place of saying, I forgive, I have let go. Okay? That's a promise I make to you. And now as a church, this text tells us that we are to confess our sins we take communion by confessing our sins we we acknowledge our sin we acknowledge our wrongdoing and maybe you're here this morning what you need to acknowledge is your unforgiving heart for sins that have been um, placed on you things that people have done to you and you're saying Lord I need to forgive help me to do that I'm going to take this cup to take this bread take this cup to forgive me of my sins or to at least show me the truth of forgiveness of sins and then help me as I forgive others and that's what, that's what this call of communion is all about. The bread represents his body has broken the cup, his blood that was shed. It's only symbolic. It happened 2,000 years ago on the day on Calvary. Do you know God's forgiveness? Are you bitter and resentful? Will you let go today? Will you begin the process today? Will you confess your sins today and enjoy the communion and the joy of knowing Christ, knowing your sins are forgiven, and have intimacy with God? That's what this is a prayer is about. I invite you. If you're a believer, the table's for you. It's not a king's table. It's a believer's table. If you're not a Christian, you're holding on to bitterness, you have not let him go, you have not asked God to forgive you, uh, come and talk to me. We'll pray, and we'll, we'll talk to you about Christ, but this table is for believers. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you. The band's going to play. We're going to confess. We're going to acknowledge our sin. We're going to acknowledge our unforgiveness hearts. And then we're going to celebrate the joy of what Christ has done, bread his body, his cup, the blood that we shed. Father... you speak these words to us sometimes difficult words but words that we need to hear we know it comes from your grace your love your mercy toward your children so father I want I just we just want to pray for those in this room that maybe are struggling with what is and is not forgiveness maybe they maybe there's someone here that has been hurt deeply and and needs to get the help By your spirit, through brothers and sisters, to come along them, to be set free from the shackles and chains of an unforgiven heart. Work in their hearts today. Help us as a people come together. Forgive us of our sins. Let us work together. Let us be the body of Christ. Let us love one another. And let us care for one another. And serve you in such a way that would bring you glory. Father, we pray as we confess and repent and take up this communion this morning, that you would get glory and your people will be filled with joy, the joy of their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.